Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Battle of Hattin. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. From 1183 to 1185, Salahuddin launches several raids into Frankish Palestine and Transjordan. The Franks, stymied by infighting and weak leadership, are unable to respond appropriately. Baldwin IV dies in 1186 and his eight-year-old nephew, Baldwin V, takes the throne. Salahuddin falls gravely ill in the winter of 1186 and his empire almost disintegrates. Once he recovers, Salahuddin makes peace with the Zangis and Mosul becomes a vassal. And with that, let's discuss the Battle of Hattin, one of the most important events in Muslim history. The Ayyubid Empire By the spring of 1186, things were looking pretty good for Salahuddin. He had a truce with the Franks and an alliance with the Byzantines. His empire stretched from North Africa to Anatolia. And now that Mosul had been subjugated, he was even on good terms with the Abbasid Caliph. Of course, Salahuddin still had to deal with the multiple personalities helping him run his vast empire. Salahuddin wanted to prepare his sons to take over after he was gone. In order to do so, he installed his sons, all of whom were still teenagers, in high positions within the empire. His eldest son, Al-Afdal, was about 16 years old and was brought in to govern Damascus alongside Salahuddin. In truth, however, Salahuddin was grooming his son for leadership. His second oldest son, Al-Aziz Uthman, was 14 years old and ruled over Egypt. However, his uncle, Al-Adil, served as his atabeg and did most of the heavy lifting. Finally, his 13-year-old son, and according to some reports, his favorite, Al-Dhahir, was put in charge of Aleppo, also with an advisor to guide him. Other members of the family had to be watched more carefully. Salahuddin's nephew, Taqiyuddin, had been governor of Cairo for nearly three years. But during Salahuddin's terrible sickness the year before, Taqiyuddin came very close to declaring independence in Egypt. Salahuddin ordered his nephew out of Egypt and reassigned him to Hama in Syria. All this goes to show that Salahuddin's empire was not a single political unit. Salahuddin was more like the leader of a loose coalition than a true emperor. As a Kurd and an ethnic minority, he struggled to earn the respect of the Arabs and Turks who dominated the Middle East. Many of them, especially the Turks, considered him an upstart who snatched Nurdin's lands from the Zangis. Some parts of the Ayyubid Empire only offered nominal allegiance to Salahuddin. For instance, Mosul. 
Even though Alizuddin Zangi was technically a vassal, he ruled the city completely independent of Salahuddin. Many of the cities and towns within his empire had to be bribed to join. Of course, this was often to avoid violent conflict and the killing of Muslims. But it did not engender any strong feelings of loyalty towards the Kurdish sultan. The fragility of Salahuddin's rule became evident during his sickness in 1185. When everyone thought he was going to die, his empire almost collapsed. The only thing that held Salahuddin's realm together was Salahuddin himself. It was his character, his amazing diplomatic skills, and his military strength that kept it all together. And when he was gone, much of his empire would go with him. But for now, Salahuddin and his ambitions were healthy and strong. The sickness that almost killed him had also sharpened his focus. More than anything else, Salahuddin wanted to fulfill his vow and bring Jerusalem back to Islam. Political Crisis in Jerusalem The problems Salahuddin was dealing with in Damascus were nothing compared to the political mess in the kingdom of Jerusalem. In 1186, Less than a year after taking the throne, the sickly child king, Baldwin V, died. With the deaths of two kings in such rapid succession, the Franks were in turmoil. Raymond of Tripoli had been the young king's regent and tried to position himself as the successor. When it became clear no one would support him in that endeavor, he lobbied for Humphrey of Tehran to become the next king. Humphrey, however, wanted nothing to do with that. Princess Sibylla, the leper king's sister, and her husband, Guy of Lusignan, were also scheming for the throne. She was the daughter and sister of kings, while Guy had once been the regent of a king, albeit very briefly. These connections to the past attracted the most support. Several noble houses within Jerusalem supported them, as did the Latin Patriarch and the Templar and Hospitaller military orders. And as it turned out, that was enough. Sibylla was named Queen of Jerusalem, and her husband, Guy of Lusignan, became its king. Though many Franks supported Guy and Sibylla, there were many who did not. Of course, Raymond of Tripoli was angry about being sidelined for a European with little experience in Outremer. And the Ibelin brothers, Bellion and Baldwin, were also unhappy with this turn of events. These rivalries almost led to civil war. Eventually, Baldwin of Ibelin fled Jerusalem and took up residence in Antioch. And Raymond of Tripoli whose lands bordered the kingdom of Jerusalem, reached out to Salahuddin for protection. For the Christians of Utremer, this was the ultimate betrayal, but Raymond had little other choice. King Guy was planning to invade Tripoli, and there was no one else in the region strong enough to stop him. Salahuddin, who was more than happy to help the Franks fight each other, sent a contingent of troops to Tiberias for added protection. 
The Franks seized at the site of Muslims patrolling what they considered a Christian city. When tempers settled down, King Guy also sought a truce from Salahuddin. After the recent upheavals in Utremer, he needed time to get things in order. Salahuddin relented and granted a one-year truce. And then, six months later, Reynald of Chatillon attacked a Muslim caravan traveling through Transjordan. To make matters worse, Salahuddin's sister was reported to be traveling with that caravan. A war with Salahuddin was the last thing King Guy and the Franks of Outremer needed at that moment. But, thanks to Reynald, that's exactly what they were getting. Salahuddin goes to war. Even though Salahuddin was angry about Reynald of Chatillon breaking a truce yet again, it played right into his plans. He wanted to go to war with the Franks, and it was unlikely he'd extend the truce once the year was up. Salahuddin's empire was vast, and it would take several months to get ready for war. He put his son, Al-Afdal, in charge of mobilizing tens of thousands of soldiers from across the empire. Troops came in from Nubia, Egypt, Syria, Anatolia, and Al-Jazeera. When all was said and done, Salahuddin would have an army consisting of over 12,000 horsemen and 42,000 infantry. Salahuddin ordered Gokbori, his governor of Haran, to lead a reconnaissance force of 7,000 horsemen through Palestine. In order to do so, Gokbori needed permission from Raymond of Tripoli. This naturally put Raymond in a difficult spot. On the one hand, he was technically an ally of Salahuddin. On the other hand, he was a crusader at heart and had only allied with Salahuddin for protection against King Guy of Jerusalem. Raymond eventually granted permission, but made Gogbori promise not to do any raiding and to leave by nightfall. Gokbori and his 7,000 horsemen raced through Palestine making detailed notes about the terrain and potential battle spots. They also made sure to survey the hills at Safuria, the Franks' traditional battlefield headquarters. A small band of Templars and Hospitallers spotted the Muslim cavalry while they were surveying Palestine. Despite being hopelessly outnumbered, they decided to attack Gokbori. With only 130 knights and 300 infantry, the Franks did not stand a chance. Gogbori's cavalry crushed them, killing and capturing nearly the entire force. The Hospitaller Master was killed in the battle, though the Templar Master, Gerard of Ridofort, managed to get away. In April 1187, Salahuddin put the first phase of his plan into action, sending thousands of troops to raid Frankish territory. His nephew Takayuddin raided Frankish lands north of Syria. These attacks were so devastating, Bohemond III of Antioch submitted to Salahuddin as a vassal. 
This secured Salahuddin's northern flank, allowing him to focus on Palestine and Transjordan. Salahuddin also sent raiding parties through Transjordan, tearing up the countryside right outside of Reynal's massive castles. Though he was humiliated, Reynal did not take the bait and face the Muslims in open battle. Salahuddin's son, Al-Afdal, got his first taste of military action, leading another raiding expedition through northern Palestine. Once again, the Franks were unable to respond as the Muslims pillaged at will. Meanwhile, Salahuddin spent much of the spring drilling his men, making sure the many pieces of this enormous army were in sync and working together. Finally, it was time to head out. On the last Friday of June 1187, three columns consisting of thousands of soldiers marched out of Damascus. The left flank was led by Taqiyuddin, the right flank by Gokbori, and Salahuddin took the center. As for the Franks, King Guy did everything he could to muster an army to match Salahuddin's. He went to his rival, Raymond of Tripoli, and convinced him to join with the Franks and break his deal with Salahuddin. Then he recruited nearly every male of fighting age throughout the entire kingdom. Boys who could barely shave and old men whose best days were long behind them were drafted into the Frankish army. He pulled nearly every soldier from every castle, fortress, and city in Palestine into his army. While this allowed King Guy to muster an impressive force, it also put the kingdom in a dangerous position. These lightly defended territories would be vulnerable if the Franks were defeated. King Guy also took the extra step of hiring mercenaries to fill out his ranks. By the time he was ready to march to Safaria, the Frankish army numbered 1,200 knights and 18,000 soldiers. An impressive number for sure, but still less than half that of Salahuddin. The Battle of Hattin Salahuddin set up camp about 10 miles east of the Franks before sending out more raiding parties. As always, he was hoping to pester the Franks enough to rush out and fight him in open battle. And as always, the Franks maintained their discipline. But Salahuddin had an idea that might force the Franks to respond. During the previous months, while the Muslims were raiding Palestine, Salahuddin learned that Raymond of Tripoli's wife was at a castle in Tiberias near the Sea of Galilee. He also knew the castle was vulnerable since King Guy had drafted most of its garrison into his army. Salahuddin led the attack on Tiberias, forcing Lady Esquiva, Raymond's wife, and her guards to take refuge in the city's fortress. Salahuddin put the fortress under siege, knowing she would send a message to her husband asking for help. When the Franks got Lady Esquiva's message, they debated about what to do. They knew that if they tried to rescue her, they were walking right into Salahuddin's trap. But their ego made it difficult to ignore the pleas of a lady in distress. 
The smart move was to stay put at Safodia, which was well defended and had access to water. Even Raymond of Tripoli argued against trying to rescue his wife. Raymond had fought the Muslims many times over the years, and he knew how things worked. He knew Salahuddin's large army was not a permanent thing. If given enough time, the Muslim soldiers would get tired of being in the field. And as the months grew colder, they'd eventually disband and return home. But Reynald of Châtillon, the oath-breaker, saw things differently. He advised King Guy not to listen to Raymond de Tripoli, who up until recently was allied with Salahuddin. He warned the king that if he did not try to rescue Lady Esquiva, he would be forever known as a coward. King Guy was still self-conscious from his last battle when he was criticized for being too cautious. Eager to prove himself, he was not going to let that happen again. On July 3, 1187, King Guy led his army out of Saphoria and towards Tiberias. When Salahuddin's scouts reported that the Franks were on the move, he swung into action. Keeping a small force at Tiberias to watch Lady Esquiva, he sent several detachments ahead to harass the Franks as they made the 16-mile trek towards Tiberias. He ordered all the wells in the area to be poisoned or destroyed. But for his own soldiers, he made sure they had access to a nearby spring. He even had more water brought in from Transjordan by camel. Then he placed a strong guard at the only other spring in the region. It was located at a small village named Hatin, about four miles west of Tiberias. Finally, he stationed the main body of his army in the open fields before Tiberias, blocking the path to Lady Esquiva's fortress. The Franks camped in an open field that night just south of the village of Hatin. They spent the entire night with no water and just a few miles from the Muslim armies. Throughout the night, the Franks reported hearing the Muslims chanting Allahu Akbar and La ilaha illallah. When the sun came up on the morning of July 4, 1187, Salahuddin did not open with an attack. Instead, he held his men back and let the Franks continue their march towards Tiberias. The longer they marched in the summer sun with their heavy armor on, the better. As the Franks marched in the grueling heat, Salahuddin exacerbated their misery. He ordered the brushes and shrubbery in the area set on fire. And now, the Franks were choking on thick smoke, they were extremely thirsty, and they were baking under the sun. Salahuddin's archers picked at the Franks whenever they could. Normally, the Muslim arrows did minimal damage when the Franks were in proper formation. Their armor, shields, and tight ranks either deflected or absorbed most arrows and crossbow bolts. But things were different now. The heat and smoke caused many of them to falter, lose discipline, and fall out of formation. Some of the Franks even shed their armor to get relief from the heat. 
With their ranks dispersed, Salahuddin ordered wave after wave of volleys. The Muslim arrows found their marks, wiping out hundreds of the lightly armored foot soldiers. This destruction frightened the survivors and spread panic through the Frankish ranks. Before long, entire segments of the Frankish army broke rank and fled into the desert. Seeing the army disintegrate, Raymond of Tripoli took action, leading a charge into the Muslim ranks. But rather than engage him directly, the Muslims simply parted like the Red Sea, allowing Raymond and his men to fly through. When he realized he was separated from the rest of the army, Raymond did not bother to rush back to the fight. Instead, he and his men just kept on riding and fled the scene. Salahuddin's arrow volleys had the desired effect and now the Frankish army was scattered and on the run. The arrows had decimated their ranks and those that fled were chased down and killed by the Muslims. King Guy knew the battle was lost but wanted to make a brave last stand. He fought his way through the madness to the top of a nearby hill with two stony formations called the Horns of Hattin. There, he pitched his red tent and hoisted the true cross so his men could see it. Soon, thousands of soldiers rallied to his side, ready to take this last stand with their king. King Guy only had one chance at victory. They had to kill Salahuddin. If Salahuddin went down, then the rest of the army might fall apart. Kingi led his men in a brutal charge down the hill and toward Salahuddin. They fought their way through the Muslim ranks, taking heavy losses but also inflicting severe damage along the way. They had almost reached Salahuddin when the Muslim ranks closed in on them and the Franks were forced to retreat. The Franks took even more losses as they fought their way out of the fray and back up the hill towards the king's red tent by the horns of Hattin. King Guy decided to give it another try. He girded his men's spirit and once again charged into the Muslim ranks in a desperate attempt to reach Salahuddin. But the momentum was gone. Their losses were even heavier on the second charge. It was all over. The Muslims had won the day. Thousands of Franks were killed. Thousands more were taken prisoner, including the king and Reynald of Châtillon, the Oathbreaker. The true cross, the greatest relic in Christendom, was now the property of Salahuddin al-Ayubi. Dealing with the Prisoners Several hours later, the Frankish nobles who survived the battle were brought into Salahuddin's battlefield tent. Most of the other POWs could not afford their ransom and would likely be sold into slavery. However, these nobles could be traded for Muslim prisoners or, more likely, ransomed for high prices. But before any of that happened, Salahuddin wanted to meet King Guy and Reynald of Châtillon. Battered, bloodied, and bruised, the two men were brought before the sultan. King Guy was shaking as much from dehydration as fear for his life. Salahuddin ordered a goblet of ice water sweetened with honey and presented it to the captured king. 
King Guy drank greedily, then passed the goblet to Reynald. Speaking through an interpreter, Slahodin told Reynald of Chatillon that he did not give him that water. Therefore, he was under no obligation to treat Reynald as a guest, and his protection was not guaranteed. Still speaking through the interpreter, Salahuddin scolded Reynald of Chatillon for bringing this destruction on his land. He berated him for acting dishonorably and breaking multiple vows. Salahuddin stood up, walked over to Reynald, and advised him to convert to Islam and his life would be spared. When Reynald declined, Salahuddin unsheathed his sword and with a great yell took off the oathbreaker's head. King Guy had forgotten about the water and was shaking again, afraid he was next. But Salahuddin simply put his sword back in its scabbard and ordered Reynald's body to be taken away. He assured King Guy that he was a guest and would be treated favorably. Then the king was also taken away. Two days later, it was time to deal with the captured members of the military orders, the Knights Templar, and the Knights Hospitaller. Even though these men came from wealthy families, Salahuddin offered no ransoms. They were too skilled at fighting and too hated by the Muslims to be released that easily. On July 6, 1187, Salahuddin offered the Templars and Hospitallers the same deal he gave to Reynald of Chatillon. If they accepted Islam, they'd be released immediately. Some of the knights accepted his offer and were freed, but most did not. Salahuddin ordered their execution and nearly 200 Templars and Hospitallers were killed. None of the other captives were killed, though thousands wound up as slaves. There were now so many slaves on the market, the price dropped for several months. Salahuddin had the true cross transferred to Damascus, where it remained for years until it was lost to history. He also wrote a letter to the caliph in Baghdad, praising Allah for this great victory. With his victory at the Battle of Hattin, nearly the entire Latin Christian army in Palestine was destroyed. There were very few fighting men available to protect what remained of the kingdom of Jerusalem. All that was left was for Salahuddin to consolidate his hold on Palestine. The best way to do this was to capture every castle and every fortress in the region. And then he could turn his focus to the most important prize of all, the city of Jerusalem. In the next episode, We'll discuss Salahuddin's conquest of Palestine and his retaking of Jerusalem. But until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.